Talks. This is episode five, and this week we will be talking about the slog. Now, the slog is kind of an eponious term that can be extremely subjective. And I say subjective and not objective because to different people, it means different things. We could have three different viewpoints on this this evening, so we're going to find out what's what. So tonight, I am joined by Dahl and Finya. Hello. Hello. So what does the slog mean to you? So for me, the slog started shortly after Winter's Heart. I am really terrible with the order of the books. It was Winter's Heart and then Crossroads. Crossroads of Twilight, yes. Technically the same book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I know we've talked about that before. Yeah. It's all of the same events that happens across two different books. Yeah. So that, that that is, I think, where a lot of people can agree. Yeah, yeah. Winter's Heart was a little slow, but it really dragged in uh, Crossroads of Twilight. But for me, Winter's Heart was the last book published when I started reading for real, not the five or six times I started Eye of the World and put it down. When did it start for you? For me, I started reading in the late 90s. I think 98 was when I started reading. So I think at about that time, Path of Daggers was the most recently published book. But I didn't get through all eight books in the first year. So arguably, maybe a little sooner than that, because I was an angsty teen that wanted to see how cool Rand could be. And I didn't really want to deal with all of this world building and all of these other characters that I just... Honestly, on the first read, didn't care too much about. I didn't care what the Aes Sedai and Saladar were doing. I would just wanted to see what the Dragon Reborn was doing. I wanted to see what Perrin was doing. I wanted to see what Matt was doing. So when it got to probably about a crown of swords for me, like post Dumai's well, because that's like the coolest stuff. And then we hit this drag about what's going to happen next that through crossroads of twilight for me generally tends to be the slog because now we kind of hit this slow pace of all right all this stuff has happened we're going to sit and stew on political stances between different countries for a couple of books so finya what do you think Obviously, I read the books after they had all been published. And when I started reading, Diana was warning me like, oh, you're getting close to the slog. You're you're getting close to the slog. And then I started book eight. And I was like, oh, this is fine. I don't find this a slog at all. And my definition of slog, um, I look back through my text messages to Diana, and I defined it as something that I can only get through if I pour myself a glass of wine. (laughs) So I found it okay. And then... We get to Perrin, and poor Perrin just does absolutely nothing. He sits around and thinks about how much he wants to do stuff, but he does not do anything. And I found that just intolerable. <laughs> like, the stuff with Fael was really interesting. So, so everything that Perrin was involved with was interesting, but Perrin's viewpoint in particular was just really tough for me to get through. I think a lot of people agree with that. Perrin's really hard because he is more or less the constant exposition because of a sense of smell. We always get like the situation is going on and Perrin is kind of that removed third party of, oh, I can smell her being angry at this guy, but shows nothing of it when the conversation is going on between those two characters. So he's our exposition, which is why I can see a lot of people having problem with him. It was just very, very slow. So when I got there, I was like, okay, I get why people might say this is a slog. He also like sits there and whines about not being able to save his wife. Mm-hmm. For how many books? It feels like it's a whole, like multiple books, but it's really only not, like one full book. 
and maybe part of two other books. I can't really remember now. It was definitely one of those things of as the books were coming out. And, you know, there at the end, before Robert Jordan passed away, it was like four years between each book. So it was just four years of stewing on, oh my God, is Fayel going to be forever captured? To us who were reading it at the time, it was like a 10-year tenure of her being captured. And if you do a book a month or something like that, it's not that long. It was not quite that bad. So I was very grateful that I did have all of the books. And once I, you know, once I got through one book, I could just move on to the next. I didn't have a big gap in between. Yeah, I think that helps a lot. My theory was what you think the slog is depends entirely on when you started reading. I have some friends that read probably the first five or six books and they're like the first three are the worst because it doesn't pick up till four. And I'm like, okay, that's that's an interesting viewpoint. I don't hear that one very often from people, but I've I've heard at least twice that specifically because the first three books are more Tolkien in nature before it really takes off. Plot he proposed for the first book was supposed to end and then Dragon Reborn and it ended up being three books. Yeah, yeah. I always remember hearing that he wanted it to be a trilogy and then it turned into a quadrilogy and then it just kind of kind of kept going from there. Yeah. I can't imagine telling the story that he ended up telling in just three books. Like there's so much to it. Like, how, how could you ever tell it in just three books? I don't know. Get rid of a lot of exposition. A lot of exposition. You have to take away a lot of what made the books so unique. I mean, you would lose so much depth to it. I made my mother read the books after I finished the series. And when the TV show came out, um, I was like, Mom, you have to read these books. You'll really, really love them. I know it's kind of intimidating because there are so many books in the series, but you'll love all of the politicking. You'll absolutely adore it. And eventually I, I was able to convince her and she blazed through it. When she was getting to like book eight or nine, I was like, oh, you're, you know, you might be slowing down a little bit because she was reading these books in like one week. I mean, she was going really fast and she got there and was like, no, this is no slog at all. Like I'm, I'm still enjoying them just as much as I have been. And she continued her pace until she finished, finished the series. That's impressive. Probably the fastest I ever read them was when the final three were coming out and I would reread the other two like the month before it would come out. That was like a week, maybe two weeks per each book. And they're already pretty big boys. So When I was reading them first, it would take a month or more to read through for me. Oh. But I have binocular vision disorder and uh, dyslexia, so I'm a really slow reader. I read big books, but I read them very, very slowly. So the last read through took me... 18 months and that was right before memory light came out i wanted to get through all of the books i think that's what everybody did too like i don't know anybody that just picked up the last book and read it or something i realized when the first one that brandon wrote came out i didn't do a reread and i couldn't remember who everybody was <laughs> so that's like when i realized i needed to do a reread so i finished right before towers of midnight came out and i read it and then Reread it right before Memory Light came out, which was like what a year or so later, year and a half. So I just reread that one instead of the whole series one more time. But that means I, I only read Memory of Light once. You know what's wild about the slog though? That if you go by the post Crown of Swords through Crossroads of Twilight to Knife of Dreams, that means you generally have to include New Spring. I don't think New Spring counts. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I, I wouldn't count New Spring either. They published around the same time as those? Yeah, if you're going by publication date, but if you're going by like story chronology, it doesn't fit in the slog. 
you know what? I always say you're technically should be reading this book after Crossroads of Twilight. So to me, it would fall within the confines of the definition of the slog. And it was actually published twice. I can't remember when the first time it was published. It came out in, God, it came out when I was in my first year in college, which was 2004. Well, that's when the novel came out. The novella came out before that. Oh, I see. I think it's really interesting that you say that it should be read after book 10. Is that the one that you're saying? Yeah, uh, that's Crossroads of Twilight specifically. I know the book names. If you gave me a name, I can say, yes, that's a Wheel of Time book. But I, <laughs> I don't know what number they are. But I think it's really interesting that you say that it should be right after Crossroads of Twilight, because I feel you're much better served, honestly, by reading it once you finish the series. I've heard that argument, but I've also heard from, I want to say, completely unsourced, that I have heard from Jordan himself that you should be reading it at about that time. And not do one of those things of read it before you start the series, because it gives away a whole lot of stuff. I definitely don't think you should read it before you start the series, for sure. Because like you say, like there's so much disgust in it that is just kind of spoilery for a whole bunch of the series. I think I read it after book six, because that's when Diana said that I should read it. I kind of regret it because at that point there was still context that I was missing. And like I hadn't met Kazuan, for example. Yeah, because she doesn't appear until halfway or later through Crown of Swords. Yeah, so I wish that I had read it later. And I think that probably influences why I think you should read it at the end of the series. Well, I mean, the appearance of Cat Swan is kind of a, uh, in, in the sense of the story, she was this all-powerful Aes Sedai that just disappeared and everybody thought she was dead. And then she is, whoosh, she's back and she's bigger than ever. And yeah, if you read New Spring before she returns, it kind of spoils the fact. So I found the publishment date. The short story was published in 1990. Wow, 1990-something? Uh, 1998. Okay, that's when I started reading. It came out in a anthology with a story from Robert Jordan, Stephen King, Terry Goodkind, Anne McCaffrey, Raymond E. Feist, Orson Scott Codd. It's a really good anthology. It's really good. Wow, that's the S-tier league right there. It's like basically everybody that was big. And this was actually, I think, before Martin published Game of Thrones. Or no, I guess. No, Game of Thrones was 96, right? Yeah, it would have been right after he published it. So it would have been before it was huge. But uh, Martin, Pratchett, Feist, Ursula K. Le Guin. Jeez. Robert Silverberg, Tad Williams. Those are big names for sure. Like all of the, like every single one. Basically, everybody that was big in fantasy, I have a copy of it somewhere. Boy, I'm going to have to hunt down a copy of that. Yeah, it's not easy to find. Oh, of course it's not. <laughs> I happened to find it in a used bookstore years ago. That's a lucky find. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like the time I found a signed Robert Jordan book in a used bookstore for like three bucks. Oh, wow. That's cool. That's really cool. It's personalized to somebody, but it was years after his death, and I was like, ah, I'll take what I can get. That can be my name just for this book. Yeah, my name is Sarah. My name is Sarah now. <laughs> yes. Hey, I mean, you could give it to me because my name actually is Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was just a novella. Was it like an abridged version of what the final story came to be? Yeah, he fleshed it out into a novel for release in 2004. I will say that my one fun trivia fact about New Spring is that it is the only time in the entirety of the Wheel of Time story that you hear somebody mention a bathroom. What about the bath that Elaine took for like... No, 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 no. Specifically going to use the bathroom. Oh, the toilet. 
think it was someone asked where Moraine was, and uh, one of the Malkiri fellas was just like, ah, I think she went off to the privy. And Lan was like, we don't talk about that. And that was like it. And it just, just kind of sticks with me. I don't remember that. I'm, I'm sure someone's going to fact check me on it, and I'm, I'm probably a little bit wrong, but yeah. uh, it does happen. Yeah, I, I mean, I believe you. It's just not something that stood out to me, I guess. <laughs> well, because for me, it was just like, I have never heard, because, you know, Jordan was more or less a very clean writer in terms of he really didn't like, you know, how some fantasy authors will get down to the nitty gritty of the descriptions of some stuff. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we don't really get that in Wheel of Time. It's all kind of just assumed. I don't really need to know that the Aes Sedai go to the bathroom. Yeah, right. I can just assume that they did. Unless it's important to the plot, like the Chamber of Secrets hidden in the bathroom. I, I don't need to know anything about the bathroom. I certainly don't need five chapters of Elaine in the bathroom. <laughs> I did find, I have to admit, I did find a lot of Elaine's plotline a bit of a slog. Yeah, I think that's one. Like, the intrigue was interesting, but it really dragged on. I think for me, it was in Winter's Heart when it, it felt like it took half the book to leave Ebu Dar. For me, that was the really big thing of, oh my God, is it really taking them 15 chapters to escape the city? I didn't mind that. It was just when she got pregnant and then suddenly her entire plot line was just her being pregnant. And that I found frustrating, but that's also not something like I have no interest in pregnancy or reading about pregnancy. So that was, <laughs> that was just not for me. Yeah. I can't say that was my favorite point. Like she was also trying to secure her place for the throne when they thought her mother was dead. And if it had focused more on that, I would have liked it more. But there were so many descriptions of her bath. Yeah. <laughs> and like her morning sickness. And I know that, you know, when you're pregnant, you have morning sickness. And it's great that that was included. But I didn't need to hear about it so often. It was a lot of how it affected her use of the power, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. They did specifically talk about that, how her power would fluctuate just because. It's kind of the weirdest thing, too, because it's like the first time we're hearing about it. I don't remember any other character in the series being like actively pregnant that's like the only perspective that we get on a one power user in pregnancy mm -hmm. what is what is it the baby feeds on the one power that's why her power fluctuates i don't know i mean but if you think about it like it's a kind of interesting concept that pregnancy affects your use of the one power so from that standpoint like i liked it it just there was a lot of it yeah it really could have been condensed <laughs> in one chapter the other thing that really got to me in escaping Ibudar, a building fell on Matt, and then we don't see him for a whole book. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Then I got done with, was it the next book? Was it in Path of Daggers or was it? The next book after uh, Crossroads of Twilight is Knife of Dreams. Yeah, I get Knife of Dreams and Path of Daggers mixed up because they're both knives. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But uh, he doesn't show up again until Knife of Dreams. He's not, is it, or is it Knife of Dreams the one he's not in? Um, I can't remember. He's in Crossroads of Twilight because th that's his part of the story from Winter's Heart. I'm a little fuzzy on Knife of Dreams at this point. It's been so long since I've done a reread of it, but uh, I believe we have most everybody in that book at that point since it kind of since the previous two books kind of sink everybody back up. I, I just can't because I remember getting through and going, "What? What the hell happened to Matt?" That would have been a horrible cliffhanger to not have another book immediately afterwards it was yeah we we, we lived for the, with that for about four years because it was like it was like 2000 i think was 
Winner's Heart in 2001 was like Crossroads of Twilight. Winner's Heart was in 2000 because that's when I started reading. Yeah, and then Knife of Dreams was 2004. 2005. 2005, and then we didn't get Gathering Storm until... Bum, bum, bum. 2009. 2009. Ouch. So. Yep. But after um, after the passing of Jordan, everybody was just like, well, that's it. We're never going to find out what happens. Yeah. Although, if you had read the blogs when things weren't starting to look not good, he worked as long as he could. And then when he couldn't get out of bed, he called Wilson in. And he's like, I want to tell you something. And he basically started dictating the end of the book. And Wilson went, hold on. And he went out to Walmart and thought, like, I think he actually went out, out all over Charleston to find as many tapes as he could in a tape recorder. Yeah, because we, at least at the first Jordan Con, got to hear an audio dictation of mm-hmm. the opening of Gathering Storm. Yes, that was the that was the first tape he did. Like He basically dictated it word for word. It's barely changed. And that will probably never see the light of day again. Mm-mm. That's incredible, though, that it was played at Jordan Con, the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They did it, I believe, at the opening ceremonies. Either that or the closing. And Harriet sort of surprised us with it. Yeah, because we were all just like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. What is this? And that was like right before they also announced, ah, it's going to be three books instead of one. Yeah, I think it wasn't specifically opening ceremonies. It was like we had a big panel with Brandon and Harriet on it talking about the books. And we had to have everybody agree to not record. Yeah, that that was a big thing. I remember that. They were just like, please. It was like a heartfelt, please don't do this. Please don't record this. Please. Like, we're about to share something very special and very intimate. And out of respect, please put your phones away and do not record and do not speak. And I never heard a more silence in a room. We had like 120 something people. Yeah, it was it was pretty small. It was pretty small. And she starts playing the tape. If you've ever met Robert Jordan, he had this big booming voice and it was very, very weak and very small, especially for him. And he basically read us what essentially is the prologue for a gathering storm. You could hear the the uh, you know a wind started in I forget where it starts, but you know, and it sweeps over everything. And like after five or ten minutes, and it ends, and you could hear a pin drop, and every now and then you'd hear <laughs> sniffles <laughs> and people crying and. It was just so moving, and Harriet was like, thank you for sharing that with us. And that was the end of the panel, when everybody just left in quiet. Like, <laughs> it was not a dry eye in that room. All right, now I'm crying. <laughs> I have chills just listening to you tell that story. It was extremely special. Yeah, it really was. Definitely glad to be a part of that. For me, I didn't keep up with the Wheel of Time community at all, because I didn't really participate in any online i knew dragon mount existed i would go there sometimes but i wasn't a part of it and i i knew that robert jordan had his blog there and i remember seeing some posts sometimes but i never really paid attention to it and i had no idea that he was having the problems he was having until basically the end he started blogging when he was diagnosed and he talked about how he he was a fighter and he was going to be the 5% that beat it. And, you know, you really thought it was going to happen. Towards the end, Wilson started taking over. He's like, he's too weak, but he's still fighting. And then at the very end, it was like, well, he fought hard, but it was just too much. It was interesting, especially getting to know Wilson through that because he became a part of the community as well. And we actually just lost Wilson. So that was another hard one. Yeah. 
Okay, I really am crying. <laughs> this episode brought to you by the emotion of sadness. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to it, now that we've all, maybe not you, Finia, but Doll, you and me have read the series more than once at this point. Would you say that on a second read, listen, whatever, however you process the media, would you say that it was a slog to you the second time around, third time around, fourth time around? There was definitely a little bit of a slog, but I found it less to be like whole books and more just certain chapters in particular, you know, Perrin moping about Bayou. Yeah, that's definitely a big thing for me as well. I find myself being less annoyed by quote unquote the slog at this point. It would be specific character moments. Mm -hmm. Perrin is one of them because, you know, as I previously mentioned, his whole exposition on the feelings of everybody currently in the situation that he's engaged in. I'm in the middle of Crown of Swords right now, and I'm really wanting to see more of Nynaeve and Elaine's thing, trying to find the Bull of Winds in Ibudar. Like, I want to see them finding the Bull of the Winds, but right now we're stuck with the process of Elaine, not Elaine, Egwene going through being the Amarlin and trying to get everybody's respect. And I'm just like... See, I'm the opposite. Like, I wanted to see more of Egwene and that process. Like, I didn't find that particularly a slog. I haven't reread the books, though. I've read the series the once, and I haven't had a chance to reread it yet. So I don't know if my feelings on the slow bits will change. It is interesting how different people find different aspects of the slog a slog. For me personally, it more or less comes down to the notion of, I know what's going to happen to this character coming up. So it's just like, all right, this part is going to be slow because I know what's going to come and just having to go through the process with this again. It's like, all right, let's wrap it up and move forward because we know that this is just going to, this is just a a little dip in the road kind of thing. You're going to be fine. So it's less of a, I'm annoyed with the character. It's just, I know what's going to happen. So let's just get to it. Get to the good bit. Do either of you have any more insight on the slog TM? Well, it's not part of what is traditionally referred to as the slog. But honestly, I found a lot of the last book kind of a slog. You found a memory of light a slog? Well, let me explain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Except for like the last like 400 pages. But a lot of it I found a slog because it was a lot of battles that were described as being really central and important and like the whole survival of the world hinged on them, except that you know that you still have another like 600 pages left. So they can't be that important if you have another 600 pages left. Well, I mean, what if the world had ended and we were kind of entering this world of desolation moment? Okay, I would have liked that a lot, actually. <laughs> I think that would have been great. Not to say that the book was not great. I did really enjoy the book. Yeah, no, I get your perspective. Yeah, I just had a hard time reading battle after battle after battle after battle, knowing that there was still another however many hundred pages left. Here's another perspective for you, though. Coming up on the last book and you're having to read through all these battles. Ugh. Brand gathering the rest of the great generals. Ugh. And stuff like that. I mean, for, for me, it was, all right, we're at the end of the series. Who's going to start dying? Who's going to die first? Are we going to lose someone important in one of these early battles that could have potentially made the last battle easier? So I was kind of hinged more on some character development. And also, I mean, quite frankly, I, I think you both had spent a lot more time with the series than I had. So you're probably a little more invested in the characters than I was. I mean, like I liked them for sure. Otherwise I wouldn't have read however many books, but having only read the series once, there were a lot of names where I was like, I, I know that you have shown up before, but I can't actually remember who you are. And I'm not going to look it up on Wikipedia because I don't want spoilers. 
that's true for me too. <laughs> so I'm on my nth reread of the series at this point, and even I, when a quote unquote new name pops up, I pull out my compendium to go, who was this person? Okay. Cause there is no way anybody is going to remember all of these names. Cause there is, there's like 200 unique points of view in this. And for every, you know, every point of view, there's like, I swear 50 named characters. So it was a little overwhelming. <laughs> it's like when Perrin goes back to the two rivers for the first time and it goes, Oh, Hey, here's all these two rivers people. And he names Everybody. And you go, I'm not going to remember that. I'm not going to remember that. I'm not going to remember that. I had less trouble with the two rivers names and more trouble with the Aes Sedai. It's because they all start sounding samey after a while. Yeah. yeah. That's wild. That's the first time I've heard somebody go, I found the last book to be kind of a slog. <laughs> I can't say that I've ever heard that before. I mean, and like I said, it, this is not considered the slog at all. <laughs> well, that's why I say the slog is subjective. It depends on who's reading it and when they read it. Yeah. And I also wouldn't consider it, I mean, I would consider it a slog, but not the slog. Yeah. I think we can agree that the slog generally tends to happen around Winner's Heart. That generally tends to be where most people kind of space out because the pacing definitely slows down after they find the bull, the winds, and crown of swords. At some point in time, I had seen like a timeline that showed us like, when everything happens. And like the first five books take place within like a year. Yeah, like a year. Yeah, like one year. And then those like next couple books take place in a couple weeks. And you're like, oh. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Because they specifically mention in book five or, or maybe book six that, oh, yeah, we've been gone from the two rivers for only like a year, a year and a half tops. And look at everything that has happened. Look how much Rand has changed, kind of thing. Yeah, and then, like, Crossroads and Twilight was only a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. It's like five days. That book took me, like, over a month to read the first time, and it was like, oh, not even a week passed. Actually, speaking of Rand, I found him kind of a slog at points, too. When he starts getting his insistence that he has to be hard, I'm like, okay, I get where you're coming from, but, like, just... Just give it up. Please just give it up. For me, it was always whenever he would be like, I can't let the women die. It's like, oh, God, come on, man. Sometimes you just have to kill an evil villainess. Like, you just do sometimes. And, you know, women are going to die because that's just the nature of being alive. Don't worry. When somebody's going to die, men will tell us who and how. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Even if it shows up as, oh... This Aes Sedai has blood across her forehead. I wonder what that means. And then two books later, there it is. And that's something that I think is really cool and I'm looking forward to experiencing when I go back and reread and seeing how there are these layers of foreshadowing. Oh, it is impressive sometimes. I will be in the middle of book four and then something will get said and I'm like, oh man, that doesn't happen for another three books. Yeah, he was pretty good at layering the foreshadowing. At least to some degree. Not so much with the relationship as we talked about last time. I'm going to foreshadow something that's going to happen six books down the line. But I can't foreshadow this relationship I'm going to reveal in the next book. <laughs> Two different skill sets. Yeah. If anything, he was really good at writing a battle. But not so much a relationship. Well, he was a historian and a 
you know, he saw battle. He told that story about being the, the machine gunner on um, a helicopter. And one time he saw a, a rocket coming towards them and he shot it down, I think, something like that. Something practically impossible to do. <laughs> wow. wow. And he just assumed that he was going to die. Yeah, that's intense. Yeah. I don't know how, how true that is or if, you know, it was a little bit of a tall tale. But this is a little bit of a detour. It'll, it'll come back to your point. But I was reading Terry Pratchett's biography, which was just released, and it was his personal assistant who wrote it. And he says about some of the stories that Pratchett used to say, some of them were too good to check if it was true or not. And I feel like this is too good to check. Yeah, it's one of those. It's a little too good to check. We'll just believe it. I don't even know how you could check it. There's really no way to, yeah. The only other part that really flagged for me was, and this is evidence of how many times it took me to start the whole series, but Eye of the World was very slow. I won't lie. I had probably a good three or four false starts on Eye of the World before I got going because you read this fantastic prologue to it. A guy raises a mountain as he dies. Then you go to the first chapter and it's, oh, I'm chilly and I'm walking down a dark, cold trail with my father while I'm carrying ale and I think I see something in the distance and I knock my bow and it's just like, all right, what? I loved eye of the world. <laughs> oh, I love it now. I love like, it now. But, but as a 13 year old kid who just read something really cool and then we're on something not really cool in the first chapter, it's like, come on. I didn't have any trouble with that, but I also did read it older when maybe I appreciated just the, the little things, the small things. An easy life where you're where you're carrying ale down to your village. Yeah. Yeah. I started it a couple of times in high school and between having to read some, you know, stuff for school and just not being able to get into that beginning, it just ended up I'd have to take it back to the library or when Robert loaned it to me the first time, I think Winter's Heart was coming out and he took Eye of the World back so that he could read it. So I didn't finish <laughs> it that time. Yeah. So it wasn't until I was trapped in bed for months, but he was like, here, you can finally read these. You're going to read it, and you're going to enjoy it. It was more, I, he would bring me books to read, and I would complain because I'd finish them in a couple hours or a day or two. And considering how slow I read, that was, like, I need something longer. He was like, well, here, this is longer. You got your wish. I did. I didn't know what I was asking. <laughs> All right, and I think if we have anything else sluggy to talk about. If you got any other comments, now's the time. I think I've aired all of my slog comments pretty much. Controversial, though, some of them may be. <laughs> yeah, I think a little, a touch, a scotch. I'm not sure controversial is right. It's just unique. <laughs> Un yeah, we'll go We'll go with that, unique. The kinder way of putting it. And now I'm curious if any other like newer readers thought the same thing. Yeah, because as we previously defined, it was based on publication date and kind of, I don't know about either of you, but for me, I didn't have any friends reading it, so I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. That's why I was on Tarvalon. Yeah, I, I was not. I was part of the, the Wattmania group when it was around, but I think it went def defunct in like 2000 or 2001. It wasn't around very long, but I was in that group of people and they were definitely more on the role play side of everything so i didn't have anybody in my real life to talk to about it so it kind of became this self-contained thing to where when i just got upset with the series when it got too slow it was like just i'd have to just bottle it up and shove it down because i didn't have anybody to complain about it with 
I sent Diana a lot of very angry messages. I mean, not, not angry at her, but like angry at the book. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, for me, social, social media didn't exist at the time either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I got done with Winter and Heart and I wanted to talk about it. Actually, before I read Winter and Heart, before I went out and bought it, I wanted to talk about it. And Robert was like, mm-hmm. I'm like, but you made me read these books. <laughs> I'm going to talk about it. And he's like, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't talk about books. I'm like, you spent all these years talking about these books, trying to get me to read them. And now you don't want to talk about them. So he never actually read Winner's Heart. Really? He did eventually get around to reading it. He would read my copies after I finished. But he's not read the last three books. He's like, too long since he last did the full reread. And he's like, it's too much now. So the slog knocked him out. <laughs> he, 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 didn't get ever, he didn't get past it. I've never been able to convince anybody to read past like the first book because everybody gets, I mean, because you also, once you read past the first book, you realize just how weird the first book can be comparatively. (laughs) Yeah. But everybody just gets to that first book and they're just like, I don't know, man, there's 13 more books. And I'm like, well, 14, if you include the prequel. (laughs) Really selling it there. Yeah. I know. I've heard people like, Wheel of Time fans are so weird. They'll be like, you just got to get past the first three or four books. And then there's a couple books in the middle. But if you can get past those, the last three books are really good. See, that's what I do to my friends who always tell me, you need to watch through the first season of the show and it gets better in the second. And I'm like, why am I going to waste this time <laughs> on this show? Like, if you read The Wheel of Time, I'll watch the show. Uh, all these years later, still talking about the same book series. I could talk about Wheel of Time all day long. You have no idea. There's a lot to talk about. In this segment, our hosts will take turns telling us about their favorite moments from the book. Please be warned that this segment may contain spoilers. If you have not finished reading the book, I suggest you stop listening now and join us next time. Dad, I believe you are going to talk about your favorite scene. Oh, yes. (laughs) I even wrote a thing for this. I was very impressed when you said that you wrote a thing. That's way more effort than I put into it. (laughs) I know. I was like, I'm just going to talk about it. So, yeah, mine uh, happens during the first book, specifically. So, after being separated from Tom at the White Bridge, when Tom stops the Murdral so Matt and Ryan could get away, the boys spent their time moving eastwards towards Camelin. After stealing eggs, sleeping in bushes, working at farms, they finally have a good day at Master Grinwell's farm. After that, their luck seems to be improving. They work their way through the villages, performing at inns and sleeping in real beds. The thoughts of the Merjol are fading fast as they get closer to Camelin. Then they reach Four Kings. One of Rand's immediate thoughts of the place was, I don't know about this place. I don't like it. We should just move on. To which Matt goads at him about wanting to sleep in the bushes again. Rand remains doubtful about it, but he follows Matt as they search for an end format. The fourth inn that they come across, the Dancing Cartman, is where they end up. The innkeeper is a bony man with long, stringy hair, Samuel Hake. His first impression is not great as he backhands a serving maid for making a comment in front of Matt and Rand. You can see just what kind of person he is, but somehow that doesn't scare Rand and Matt away. Rand and Matt eventually settle on the terms of employment for their time, and that night they begin to bring a crowd in to, up to this point, a nearly empty inn. It is also heavily threatening rain outside. This will all make sense soon. Rand keeps seeing Hockey eyeing his heron-marked blade and Tom's gleam in instruments. Rand mentions to Matt that he thinks they're going to rob them. They were unable to do anything at this point due to the common room being completely full as they played. Rand notices that that there is one man there that is different. He has a very expensive look to him, which stood out against literally everybody else in the common room. 
Hake keeps trying to run Matt and Rand to the bone on performances. It's begun pouring rain outside. Rand sneaks outside when Hake lets them go to eat, and he sees a name on a merchant's cart outside that they saw earlier. It says, Howl Goad. He remembers seeing this cart at Whitebridge. He immediately starts freaking out about this. So he heads back into the inn, and he tells Matt what he's seen. And at this point, Hockey's bodyguard are watching Matt and Rand like eagles. Goad is hanging out in the common room watching the boys well. Things are getting very tense. After the evening passes, the common room clears out, Hockey showing Rand and Matt to the rooms in the back. The hair on the back of their necks are starting to stand up at this point. Hockey's bodyguards are on, basically at their side the entire time. Rand basically knows at this point that they're going to rob them blind once they're asleep. So once they're in their room, they decide to block the doors so that they can escape out the window, only to realize that the windows have iron bars over them. They're pretty much trapped in this room. Thunder begins rattling in the distance. So using the thunder as cover, they try to break the iron bars from the window. Then they hear a voice. They think it's the innkeeper, Hake, that's come to rob them. But actually, it's the voice of Howl Goad. He has come for the boys. He has basically added himself as a dark friend, and he attempts to coerce them into giving themselves up to the dark one. So he attempts to break into the room, demanding them to submit. Rand begins to absolutely freak out. Thunder is roaring overhead at this point. Rand keeps muttering that they have to find a way out, and light fills the room. The air is roared and burned, and Rand felt himself getting thrown against the wall. Then he staggers to his feet and looks around him after regaining his vision. The wall where the iron-barred window had been once was gone. Goad was nowhere to be seen, so Matt and Rand gathered their belongings and escaped through the giant hole on the wall into the rain, listening behind them through the storm for the sound of a pursuit. So, this has always been one of my favorite scenes in the book because this is basically the first time that we see Rand channel without knowing that Rand channeled. Because he got pinned into a corner and basically destroyed the side of an inn with lightning to get himself out. It's not the first time we see Rand channel. Is it not? It's the most obvious one. It's the Okay, well, it's the most obvious one that he absolutely did channel in this instance. Yeah, there are a couple of places where he channels that aren't as obvious. One, when they're leaving two rivers, he channels to make Bella less tired. And then again, there's another place, I can't remember it right now, but you see him get sick every time. He gets more sick each time. It's something I didn't catch the first time I read them. Hmm. I don't think I've ever caught that, to be honest. I was going to say that I did not notice that when I read it the first time. I didn't also didn't notice the scene that, that you were just describing. Yeah, that one was obvious. I mean, ob- more obvious. It's basically he's a rat pushed into a corner and he's got, he, he's got, you know, a dark friend at the door going, come on, you know, you want to submit. It'll be so much easier if you do it. And it's kind of one of those things of he's pinned in a corner, fight or flight mode. He fights by summoning lightning to destroy the inn wall and they just escape out into the rain. And that's the end of the chapter is they are, they are running in the rain. I vaguely remember the setup, if not that specific scene, but I definitely, I don't think on my first read through on my only read through, I don't think I necessarily at that point connected the dots that that was him channeling. Oh, I, I absolutely did not the first time either. It wasn't until like a couple books later where I where I was like, oh. They sleep in the bushes after that, and he has a massive fever, and it's channeling sickness. But that's the channeling sickness you get after having done it for a while, not the first time you do it. Yeah, and we get that really awesome dream of seeing Howl Goad 
turning to ash and just dying in the wind. They sort of mimicked that in the TV show when they had him with the, the dark friend the, before Tom. Dana? Yeah, Dana. I couldn't remember her name. When Dana had him in the room and she said it was ironwood and, you know, 10 men couldn't knock it down. And then he shouldered it open. Yeah, that was basically that was basically this scene without being this scene. And I'm surprised at how few people picked up that he channeled there like when they watched it. Because uh, the friends I was watching with, I was the only one that, I'm like, he just channeled, didn't he? I'm like, he had to have channeled. He could, he wasn't big enough to have knocked that door down. That's the only way he did it. When they reveal him as the dragon, you see the weaves around him. Like, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's this scene. And then on a rewatch, I noticed that the name of the inn was specifically called The Four Kings. Yep. It was called The Four Kings. There's a, a reference to that town since they cut it out. So yes, this is probably one of my favorite. There's a dozen, dozens and dozens of scenes, but I think this one will always remain one of my favorites specifically just because of how tense the setup is to a very obvious like, oh, Rand just channeled. It feels like a very cinematic scene. I mean, like I'm really excited to go back and reread that scene now. I'm, I'm not going to do it anytime soon, probably, <laughs> because I just don't have the time. But when I when I do eventually go back and reread the first book, I'm going to keep an eye out. Okay, so I just found a, a post on our forum where somebody's talking about the times that Rand channeled in the Eye of the World. The first one was after fleeing on Winter's Night, Rand used the power to refresh Bella. If Bella fell back, he would fall back too. Whatever Moraine and Lan had to say about it, back where the Fade and the Trolloc were, Back to where Drakkar was, with all his heart and desperation, he silently shouted at Bella to run like the wind, silently tried to will the strength into her, run. His skin prickled, and his bones felt as if they were freezing, ready to split open. The light helped her run, and Bella ran. You see, that could easily be misconstrued as he is just anxiety rand. I mean, that's how I construed it the first time, for sure. The first time I read it, I would have too. But when I went back, I'm like, he channeled. And then I think at some point, someone mentioned, like, it was surprised that Bella was less tired than the other horses. Uh, it may have been Lan or Maureen. And then again in Berlon, after Matt plays a prank on the White Cloaks, Rand moved to cover the sword, but instead swept his cloak back over his shoulder. In the back of his head was a frantic wonder at what he was doing, but it was a distant thought. Accidents happen, he said, even to the children of the light. Bornhold asked some questions. A tingling thrill ran along Rand's arm and legs. He felt flushed and almost warm. The tingling fills Rand. The heat had grown into a fever. He wanted to laugh. It felt so good. A small voice in his head shouted that something was wrong, but all he could think of was how full of energy he felt, nearly bursting with it. So was that a was that a very early glimpse at Luz there in there? That was a very early glimpse of him losing control of the power. Oh, I see. I think even Egwene had talked about the the thrill, like that you've got the powers feeling you and you have this elation. I mean, once again, I think it's just incredible how much Jordan left for you to, to realize on a reread. Like, that's not something that every author can do very well. Yeah, there's so much in that first book that when you go back knowing that Rand is the dragon, where you can see he's channeling, that last one is the one that's the most obvious. But Or knowing what being the dragon means, because, I mean, you know that he's the dragon from a very, like, early on, I feel. But you don't really internalize what that means until you've read further so yeah i guess that's what i meant like 
you have a sense that there's something with Rand because you know that he's not Tam's real son, and so you know that he's the one that Maureen was looking for, but not so much why she was looking for him until they get to the eye of the world. So that'll be it for this episode of Tarvalon Talks. Thanks for joining us to talk about the slog and what it means to each and every one of us. If you have any questions about it, you can always shoot us an email at producer.tvt at gmail.com or drop into us on the TVT forums and leave us a question in the thread under general. You can even join us in our newly created Tarvalon Talks topic thread inside of the tarvalon.net Discord channel you can join by going to harvalon.net. Thanks for listening in, and until next time, stay safe.